And I'm going to begin this morning with a quote. And this quote is from my favorite John commentator and theologian. Okay, this is my favorite guy. When I don't get something, I go to this guy. And I go, oh, that's what he meant by that. His name is J.C. Ryle. He was uh, a theologian in the 19th century. He was an Anglican bishop. And, when, and he has expositions in the Gospel of John, books, books on this. And his, I love his, if you ever want to get a book, get his commentary on John because it looks like a book. It's really thin. It's not like a big, overwhelming thing. It's written in pretty plain English for that time at least. And in it, he's writing about John 11, right? And then he gets to John 11, 17 to 27. And as he begins to write on this, he says this. This is his quote from this passage. He says, There is a grand simplicity about these passages, talking about 17 to 27, which is almost spoiled by any human exposition. (laughs) To comment on it, to comment on this passage, seems like gilding gold and painting lilies. Now, I didn't know what gilding meant, so I had to Google it. Apparently, you know, it's kind of covering things with gold, painting them with gold. And then he goes on to say how difficult this passage is. How deep and wondrous this passage is, almost like an artist putting a masterpiece together. Then I get to the passage and I go, oh man, that's a big deal. And as you begin to read it, you begin to see that there is something of a masterpiece being given to us in this passage and really in all of John. Think about it. We began John chapter 11 and it begins, and you know what John chapter 11 is about. It's about the resurrection of Lazarus. We're in week three. We still haven't gotten yet to the actual resurrection of Lazarus. Because the gospel writers were not just writing the scripture, inscripturated word of God, to further your faith, to help you grow in Christ, but they were also literary masters. They wrote in ways in which they were conveying a message in a grammatical and and, and linguistic way that was both beautiful and um, comprehensive of who God is in powerful and in powerful ways. Think about it. The first week, we talked simply about the family. When you think about the story, if you go summarize the story for me, it's about a family that really loves Jesus and about Jesus really loving this family and about this family being having a brother that's sick. And then you begin to go, man, how does that feel? How are they feeling in that? And then Jesus delays two days to answer their question about healing. And you begin to see the story sort of scene, scene one the family. Scene two, the problem and the question. And here this morning, we get scene three. He's still not going to actually do the healing, but you begin to see Jesus arriving into Bethany. And so what I want to do this morning, we're going to look at this brief setting here of this story at the opening verses, verses 17 through 20, which is where Jesus is now arriving. Four days have gone by and two days of him waiting. Now he's making his two-mile journey to Bethany and about to see Lazarus, and about to see this family whom he loves. And so we begin with verse 1. We begin with verse 1, and this is John 11, verse 17. And the first thing that I want you to see in these first passages is that as Jesus arrived to Bethany, as we open up this masterpiece, this another scene in John's story, we begin to see pieces of information, more information about what's going on surrounding Jesus and his arrival to Bethany. And the first one has to do with Lazarus's physical condition, Lazarus' physical condition. Look at verse 1. On his arrival, so this is Jesus now going to Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been there for, in the tomb for how long? 
four days. Four days. Now, according to verse 17, Lazarus is not dead. We knew that already from the previous passage. He was already dead. But he has been dead for four days. Now, that's a long time. First thing that that tells us is we have to come up with the timeline, and I have it here for you. Remember that day one, the messengers would have gone to see Jesus. He would have taken them a day's journey to go tell Jesus that Lazarus was sick. You remember that from the first sermon. Then what did Jesus do? He delayed two days. That would be day two and day three. And now Jesus is making his way back into Bethany, which would be a day's journey, which would be day what? Four. So here we see the first detail is that four days has gone by, and Jesus now is entering Bethany. And John wants us to let us know it's a, while, a while has gone by. Now, we assume that Lazarus was probably dead before the messengers reached uh, Jesus with, this, with the uh, news of, Ill, of the illness of Lazarus. So, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Lazarus was dead already by the moment the messengers told Jesus, Lazarus is sick. But there's more to this four-day condition. Now, I didn't grow up in, in a Christian church, but I do have children who are in a Christian church. And I know that Sunday school, the pictures of Lazarus, I see this, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, man elegantly wrapped in linen clothing. You know, you know he's, just, he's just kind of a mummy, a really clean mummy. And, but when you think about four days in the tomb, this is far different than this. It's not as picturesque as you may think. Think about this. In all likelihood, the body would have undergone rapid decomposition due to the heat and humidity of the Middle East culture, uh, climate. Sorry, The lack of oxygen and blood flow would have caused his organs to deteriorate. Bacteria in his stomach would have broken down tissues of his cells, leading to the production of gases, Methane gas would have been coming out of his body, liquefaction, liquefaction rather, to his body. The result of gases after two or three days would have almost exploded, in some cases could explode the stomach and bloated him. Bloody, uh, bloody leakage would have come out of his body. Now, where did I get this? Google. Okay, that's, that's what, this is how I, I'm not, a, you know, if you're a, in the medical field, you go, well, you missed some parts. This is what Google told me. Uh, but, but this is true. Four days is a long time. Can you imagine Lazarus being dead for four, for four days in a tomb and what is happening to his body? John is giving us information about this narrative, creating for us a setting. But not only has he been dead for a long time and his body is being decomposed, just like our bodies are, but there's another Detail to this four days uh, notion here. Four days held particular importance to rabbinic sex during Jesus' time. Rabbis taught that after death, the soul lingered around the body for three days, and on the fourth day, it actually left. And this is actually, um, and I'll send this, these notes to you, but uh, this is on, on the Midrash, which is the commentary to the Old Testament in Judaism, and, and this is in the book regarding the book of Genesis. And it simply, it, it, it says this, that you're, I mean, if you were in a coma, and this, I have this quote, uh, I think I have this quote, maybe I don't have the quote, all right. I, I want to give you this quote from this commentator. After three days, all hope of resuscitation from a coma would be truly abandoned. So if you wanted to get a picture of this, Lazarus is really dead from every vantage point. That's what John is trying to tell us here as we look at this, these 10 verses. According to the laws of nature, he, he's stinky. 
He's bloody. He's decomposing. And according to the beliefs of these, of these rabbinic communities at this time, he is utterly dead, both spiritually and physically. According to verse 18, there, it's not only that that we get in this story, but we get something else. Look at verse 18 and 19. So we have Lazarus' physical condition, and then you have this, verse 18 and 19. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, why is this important? Why is John telling us here these details about this coming miracle? Well, it tells us this, that it wasn't just a couple of people that were around Mary and Martha, but it was many people. And here the word used is Jews, not Pharisees, as we would think about it, these religious teachers who are against Jesus, but you have generalities, maybe all types of Jews. This tells us this family was comforted by many people and friends and by a caring network of people. Not only did Jesus love them, but they were loved by a community of people. They had influence and connections with people. Now, another thing that's important here this morning is this, that by having many Jews coming to this resurrection miracle place, this story was now going to get witnesses. It wasn't just Mary and Martha who would experience this miracle. Who else would experience this miracle? Many Jews, many other people. Their comfort provided a much greater context to the story. There would be people seeing what God was going to do. The resurrection of Lazarus was not a one-time thing for just a one-time people. It was for many people to see. So I want you to see this narrative here of this story that, that John is trying to give us the details of this setting, trying to put you in that place so that you understand that there was more at work than just a miracle. Now look at verse, um, look at verse uh, 20. Look at verse 20, because John keeps going. So when Martha had, um, heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. And Mary remained seated at her house. So you get, again, you get uh, the passage of Lazarus' condition. You get that there are many witnesses going about to see this miracle. And guess who Jesus sees now? Martha, Martha, Martha. Now we have already looked at the contrast between Mary and Martha. But just in case you missed it the first time, what does John do? What, what did Martha, Martha, rem- uh, Martha went to Jesus and Mary remained where? Seated at the house. You remain seated at the house. If you remember from our first time together talking about John, we looked at, we saw that uh, the fact that Mary, uh, Martha was a woman of action, woman of energy, brimming, brimming with initiative and duty. So she's the one that runs out to meet with Jesus and talk to him. Mary was a more contemplative. Remember that we see this in Luke 10 and John 12. Here, Mary is seated at the, at the, seat, uh, seated at the house of mourning, being comforted by guests friends, and family. One commentator puts it this way, active Martha, passive Mary. Outgoing Martha, inward Mary. Social Martha, spiritual Mary. You guys see this, right? I mean, this is John trying to paint this picture of all the details of this story as we begin to see this miracle. So what's, why do we do this? Why do we look at this setting and what can we take away from it this morning is this, that Every detail of a miracle rests on God's sovereign hand. Every single one of these details 
when you read the Bible, don't bypass them. Every single one of them is inscripturated word of God. God prepares every detail for every miracle before it happens. What this tells us about God is that we do not see the supernatural when we want it. We do not see everything we desire at every moment we desire it. He's not a Rebecca call, but rather God prepares things in order for you to see miracles. And I know that's the case in my own life. I remember me being a freshman in high school and my friend Alex uh, telling me, you need to come to youth group. This is freshman year in high school. I go to youth group and I see similar amount of people here and they're singing these songs. And at the very end, I go, we're going to hold hands and pray. You know, I'm 15, right? So I'm like, yeah, I'm not holding in no man's hand, you know? But he was like, bro, you got to hold somebody's hand. So I'm holding hands, and I'm just going, man, this is so awkward. Man, I'm a man. I don't hold man's hand. You know, I'm just holding, and I'm like, they're praying. They're praying. I'm just like, amen. And then, you know, you're going to come back next week. I'm like, never again. Don't ever touch my hands again. I only touch ladies' hands. That's all I do. Again, this is 15, okay? Bear in mind here. What happens four years later? I'm at the same place, same church, and my friend Alex invites me again. But this time, my parents had gone through a divorce. This time, I had no prospects of college. Uh, this time, I had nobody. I had no girlfriend. I had no friends. This time, I, I was really lost. For four years, he had asked me, come to church. You need Christ. You need to know Jesus. For four years, every single time, come to church. He wouldn't play basketball with me, and I, I hated it. Because Friday night youth, he said, I'm not going to play basketball because I got youth. And I go, really, bro? It's basketball. Just, just, you don't go to church for four years. I introduced them to stuff that I, I, when I look back, I go, how filthy I was. Then on that day, on a Friday, Friday evening, I go to church. And the same people, let's hold hands, everybody. <laughs> I go, all right, I guess I'll hold hands. And they pray for me in the back, and I give my life to Christ. Now, now if you look at it and you go, man, Omar, you should have come to Christ when you were a freshman. You should have come to Christ when you were a sophomore or a junior. I had so many opportunities. But it took me four years, four years of loss, of pain, of rejection, self-hate. I mean, everything you can imagine to come to Christ. But every detail mattered. Every single seed that was sown by my friend. Every single meeting, every single uh, sermon I watched even during those four years, every spiritual conversation somebody had with me, all that led to me entering into a room and surrendering my life to Christ. But it took four years. When we think about how Jesus works, how God works, he orchestrates sequence of events. And in this case, he delays Jesus for two days. Lazarus is in a tomb for four days. There's Jews that have to come and witness this resurrection. All these sisters are weeping and lost all hope. It's all over. All these things have to be set in place so that the miracle happens. You guys follow me here? In order to see the miracle of God, there's so much more that God is doing. That the Lord may open our eyes that miracles don't just happen in a moment, but they happen in God's providence and in his timeline. And we see it here coming to fruition so here's one takeaway from these setting, from this setting that John gives us. Every detail of a miracle rests on God's sovereign hand. Don't, uh, don't um, uh, bypass the little things that God does in your life. Don't bypass the little wins in your life that God does to accomplish the larger miracle. So let's go to verse um, 21. And in verse 21, 
you begin to see Martha's response. And it gives us a glimpse. If you were to ask, what was Mary and Martha doing for those two days? They were waiting for Jesus. And what were they doing in their room? What, what was in their heart? Martha tells you right off the bat, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Now, what does Mary say later on in 1032? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Sisters, what do you think the sisters were saying to each other these two days that they're waiting for Jesus? Where is Jesus? Where is he? If he would have been here, this would not have happened. That is what's in their heart. They're, they're grieving not only the loss of their brother, but they're grieving the answer of God. Is God going to answer? Martha runs to Jesus, and she's one of these women that can't keep it in and lets it all just come out of her mouth. And you're going to see that in verse, uh, chapter, in verse 22. Now, I suppose that no one here knows a single woman like that that just lets it all out, right? You, we don't know any of those, but they do exist. You know, where everything comes out, flow of consciousness kind of comes out, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> this is what we see here. She's just exposing her heart, sharing everything that's in her. And what comes out of her heart is what's been buried deep within her. And these words, before we judge Mary, before we, Martha, before we go to and say, Martha, how could you say that to God? These words are bathed with spiritual honesty. Mary believed in Jesus. If you read these passages, we should say, man, Mary believed that Jesus could have healed him. Mary believe, Martha believed that Jesus had that power if he would have only come in time, she, she was honest. If you would have only come in time, then this wouldn't have happened. And we sometimes use this language. We say, Jesus, be with us. Jesus, be with Jesus, if you would have been with me, then everything would have been okay. And that's what she's saying. It's honest. It's biblical. It's heartfelt. We know that when he's with us through his spirit, we are short of his love and affection. But her Everything coming out of her heart, her honesty was also imperfect. As a disciple of Jesus, Martha could have recalled that Jesus could heal and he didn't have to be there. In John chapter 4, we see the story of a royal official's son where Jesus saw it fit when the royal came to Jesus and he says, my son is, is dead. He, 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 there's nothing that we could do for him. And Jesus says, no, your son is not dead. He is just asleep. And he tells him this, go, it'll be done. He's going to be healed. Jesus did not have to go to see him, to be there in person in John chapter 4, yet Martha has this idea of he has to be here. See, our faith is imperfect. Her faith is imperfect, although he comes bathed with honesty. Martha forgets that the bodily presence of Jesus was not necessary to secure the cure of her brother. All Jesus had to do is what? Speak. Be healed wherever he is, and healing would have happened. But that's the nature of Martha's faith in her grief. It is imperfect. And think about your own grief. When you're grieving, you can't really see everything, can you? When, you? when you struggle and you go through these deep caves of loss and struggles, it's really hard to see what's truth and what's a lie and who is God and what he's trying to do. And in this fallen age, grief tends to be a challenge for us and in it our Faith is imperfect. And so look here at verse 22. But I know, Martha catches herself, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So she comes to Jesus. She says, Jesus, I wish you would have been here. Things would have been differently, but 
but yet, yet I know that you can do something. Now, let me, let me point out one, another aspect of our imperfect faith. Is that one thing that we see in John is that Jesus has been over and over again, the Gospel of John, John is portraying Jesus as the divine Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he's the, second, uh, he's the second person of the Trinity, but John chapter 5 tells us that he is equal with God. That just as God is divine, so is Jesus. That we can go straight to Jesus, and it is as if we're going to the Father. This is what begins to show us an imperfect nature of Mary's faith. And notice she doesn't say this, Jesus, I know you can do anything you will, but rather limits Jesus to some level below the Father. And, and here, I use Ryle here uh, to, to, to give you this. Comment, comment, commenting on this. She speaks as if our Lord was a human prophet only and had no dependent power of his own as God to work a miracle, as if he could not command a cure but ask God for it, as Elisha did. She must have strangely forgotten the manner in which our Lord had often worked in miracles. So we want to look at Martha in two ways. Faithful woman of God, woman who knew God, but she's going through terrible grief. And when you go through grief, you can't see everything fully. And in her heart, Jesus should have been there. And two, why don't you go ask God like a prophet would? And maybe he'll answer you. When Jesus was God himself. Jesus said this in, um, in John 14. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The word I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus and the Father with one, yet during times of grief, the imperfect faith rises to the surface. So this is another takeaway here this morning is that every believer, first and foremost, is a converted sinner. That you do not have a perfect Christianity. That you do not have a perfect faith. That, that even pastors can fail. You guys know that? Did you know that? That even pastors are not like perfect all the time? Sinners are renewed, changed, and sanctified, but we're all sinners still. Our lives, especially during grief, are often mixed with unbelief. Now, we should receive our fallen nature and, and fall aside to it. And, um, we, should not, uh, we should not receive a fallen nature, just call ourselves, ourselves sinners. We're saints in Christ. But, but, but we should always consider that, that there's weaknesses in us, that we're imperfect, that our perfect is... It's not always perfected, but we're being perfected. Think about what the um, demon-possessed, the father of a demon-possessed son cried out. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That's our prayer in this age. This is like our prayer over and over again every single day of our lives here. Every single day, there's going to be something that comes to you, and you're going to say, do I believe in God or do I believe myself? Do I believe the world or do I believe God. Do I believe what others say about me? Do I believe what God says about me? And, and oftentimes, you're going to be taken away, like Martha has taken away by the emotion and the feeling. But here, there's a reminder for God to help our unbelief. So takeaway two here is that every believer is first and foremost a converted sinner. This means that we have to have grace on each other, right? Husbands, wives, have grace on one another. Faith is imperfect. Children, parents, have grace on each other. Faith is imperfect. Work, you know, at work, wherever you lead or wherever you're dealing with people, especially with converted people, 
we um, are imperfect. Our faith is imperfect like Martha's uh, faith. So with all that, all right, with, with, with the setting, with this um, Martha coming to Jesus and telling her what's in her heart, we now get to Jesus. And here is, look at verse 23. Jesus responds by offering comfort and hope. He says to her, your brother will rise again. That is Jesus' response. Here's the word of hope. Your brother will, I know what's been in your heart, Mary. Your brother will um, rise again. And let's remember that Jesus had already alluded to this. He alluded to this in John 11, chapter 4. When he heard these news at the very opening of this passage, we read this. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. So he's not going to die the way you think dying works. In John chapter 11, 11, this is last week. He said this, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus had already said to the messengers that went back to Mary and Martha, he already said it to the disciples that he will not die in here. He says it more clearly to Martha. Martha, your, your brother will not rise again. All these statements were words of comfort to disciples, to Mary, Martha, to those around them. And now more explicitly, he looks at Martha in the eye. He says, your brother will rise again. But, but here, we find that Martha has already been comforted. Martha is doing, you know, she's already, made, she's already processed this. And look at what she says. Look at verse 24. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection and the last day. I know, God. I know. You know how many times I sit with people and you, you comfort them with the word of God and they go, I know already. I know the Bible. I go to church. I know how to pray. I know how to read my Bible. I know it all. Here Mary says this, Master, I know he will rise in the, in, in, in the resurrection of the last day. You know what? She, she wants to hear something different. She wants to hear, yeah, I want to see him alive now. I, 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 I know that there's a future resurrection, but I want to see him now. Now, she's affirming theologically, and by the way, women who love theology, amen. Here's a theologian right here talking about eschatology in the end of the age. She's affirming theologically the ultimate end of God's people, the future resurrection of the dead. Now, here I'm going to go into some passages. You don't have to go here. I'll have them here for you. But in the Old Testament, we're frequently given this hope of life at the end. And one of the earliest books is the book of Job. And it says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand on the earth. This is Job 19. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, and not I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Here's Job crying out for this future resurrection. What about David? He speaks about life and death, life after death in uh, Psalm 16. He says this, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is David. What about Daniel? This is Daniel 12. Multitude to sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life and others to shame. Jesus himself said this 
Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. All right, let me tell you something. Martha has her theology straight. She knows that the end of the age is the future hope of Israel. She knows that the end of the age is at hand, and she knows that her brother will ultimately, as a faithful believer, will rise again and reign with Christ and with God. Life after death is a comfort to God's people, and this is the comfort that Mary already had in her heart. So we have to say, amen, Martha. You, you already see what many don't see, that there is hope in the afterlife. But as we begin to see, there's something else brewing, and this is great comfort for us, especially for those who counsel, those who have lost loved ones, that we point them to the coming resurrection, knowing that there is another time of hope and joy in Christ where our souls are reunited with our uh, uh, earthly bodies and are made new and whole and glorified. And we will reign in Christ with, in a better world, in a newer world, in a perfect world. Her comfort, however, was not complete. And Jesus knows this. You know how I know this? Because look at verse 15. Jesus answers her that the resurrection power is not only for the age to come, but it is available now. You can read there with me. Uh, okay, read this with me. Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And here's the question. Do you believe this? Let's read that together. Read with me verse 25 and 26. I want us to say this out loud together. Jesus said to her, ready? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Mary already had the future resurrection as a comfort. But here Jesus says this. That's awesome. I am that resurrection. That resurrection that you long for and you hope for is available for you today. Jesus brings together both the, the now and not yet of his power. Resurrection is available now. Those who are dead will rise again into everlasting life. Hallelujah. But those who are dead today may rise again from the dead. The same power that can bring about a soul and a body together and raise them up from the ground in a powerful way is the same power that can raise people like us from the dead upward with Christ Jesus uses this word, I am, one of his seven I am's in the Gospel of John. And we're in number five so far. In John chapter six, he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. In John chapter, later in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And here, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus' point to comfort in her grief is that yes, there is a resurrection for believers, but resurrection is also in front of her. That there is available power for her physically both to raise Lazarus and to raise others that are also dead. He is the very essence of resurrection. He is the very essence of power, the very essence of life. Now this is a phenomenal claim. It means that all of life exists by the will and power of Jesus. 
If a person, if a living person wishes not to die, only Jesus can keep that, keep that person from not dying. In, in John 5, 26, Jesus says this, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus affirms Mary's, Martha's theology, but also brings it closer to home. Jesus did not have to, did not have to cure Lazarus. Jesus did not have to be there to cure Lazarus. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the life. He will raise Lazarus from the dead, but he will also raise others from the dead. And who are those others that need some raising? Before we get there, Jesus says this, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the source of all life? Now, you, you know, I don't know, we have here, I want to say 75, 80 people in this church, 85 today or something like that. All of us here, think about it, everybody's breathing. Everybody's walking. You're going to leave here this morning and you're going to do what you're going to do. Every single second is being held by the power of Jesus Christ. Every moment, even right now, as you breathe, he is life, your very life. But there's more life to be had, and it is the eternal life that he promises. And there is, and let me, let me say this for, for, for Mary, and this is a takeaway here, that there's a difference between knowing the truth and the power of the truth. There is a difference between knowing that, yes, Jesus is good, and Jesus is going to come back, and Jesus is a plan for me, and a difference between knowing, oh, he is, he is that. He is the power and resurrection today. Jesus is pointing, instead of pointing to the death of Lazarus, he says, I am here. Don't look at death, look at me. I give life to everything, depend on me. We may live in an entire life knowing about theology, knowing about Christianity, and, and, and knowing certain things about God, and be completely unfamiliar with his resurrection power, completely unfamiliar with what he offers. And we're told here that this is the power that he offers us from Ephesians 2, now, now, this is another type of resurrection, your spiritual resurrection. Watch this. And you were what? Dead. Say it again. And you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, prince of, the power of the air and of the spirit that is now at work in the disobedient. But when you think about sin, when you think about how terrible it is that somebody dies, I want you to think about this, how terrible sin is. The reason why people die is because sin is a virus inside of man. The reason why you suffer is because sin is a virus repleted in our own being. Sin is not just rebelling against God. Sin is the byproduct of, our, uh, a, a byproduct of us not wanting to be with God or not wanting to obey God. To be dead in sin, R.C. Sproul said this, to be dead in sin is to be in a state of spiritual bondage. By nature, we're slaves to sin. The reason we can't get our act together is because we're enslaved by it. And here Jesus looks at us who are dead this morning, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the answer for this. If we want to overcome our sins and be victorious and live a new life apart from our sins, we come to the resurrection and the life. All of us, by all accounts, have been dead. Some of us were dead like me for, I don't know, 20 years in a tomb. But some of us have been dead spiritually for 30 years, 40 years, maybe one week here this morning. But Jesus comforts 
her and comforts those who are in grief because of their spiritual deadness and says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And here is uh, Martha's response. Yep, there we go. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Amen? Look at that response. Here's the grieving woman in perfect faith. So many things going against her. And here is she's going, I know theology. I know what I need to do. And then she, she ends with this, I love you. This is this, and I love you word. She, she's telling Jesus, you are who you said you are. You are the Christ, the chosen one of Israel, the Redeemer King. You are divine. You're the Son of God. And you're the God who comes into the world to do what? To save sinners. You're the promised Redeemer. In these three statements, uh, Martha brings to realization that he is the resurrection and the life. This is how we proclaim it. How do we proclaim the resurrection and life? We say Jesus is Lord. He is over our lives and all that, that he is to us. Let me finish with this. Um, every summer, uh, I come to terms with my inability to grow, ga- uh, grow uh, grass. Every summer, I, I look at that grass and I go, I know I got to grow it, uh, you know, to bypass my ineptness, I buy expensive fertilizer. Whatever's the most expensive, give it to me, and I just kind of touch the soil and throw it out there. And I don't know if you know, but it doesn't work like that. You don't set it and forget it. You have to care of it, and you have to take care of the soil. There's so many elements to it. That's not the most natural way. What I realized over time is that when, when, you know, when I use uh, synthesizers and stuff, it can harm the soil, the environment, even like the dog, right, the human health. I'm trying, to bring, I'm trying to bring life to dead things by my own power with whatever's easiest, with whatever works. The natural way would be to watering it early in the morning using organic fertilizer, letting the grass clippings lie, and I know you guys, you guys probably know more about that. That's as far as I got because I want to fix it quickly. I want life to rise. I want answers quickly. I want to see fruit fast. And we often do that in our lives, just like synthetic fertilizer. We, we want a quick fix. We want to try to resurrect things by our dead by, by, by listening to just practical advice. And I love that, by trying to have some personal growth, by, by reading books that helps us fix things in our lives, by having a job that makes us happy, by trying to build a perfect marriage. And those things are wonderful. But let me tell you something. When you're dead, that's not bringing you to life. What we run for life is a person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as you think about your own life, what are areas in your life that are dead? And let, let me give you some ideas. Let me give you some ideas. Your finances, the way you look at money is dead. You need a complete overhaul. And you're going to get Dave Ramsey's book, and you're going to do the, you know, the whole plan. And that's awesome. You should do that. But go to Jesus first. Go to the resurrection and the life. Your relationship with your children is, is dead, is, is nowhere near where it should be. Yeah, you can go visit them and do all that, but go to the resurrection and the life. Your relationship with your spouse may be utterly broken. Maybe you're alone. You're being driven alone in your own life. Uh, yes, you should try to fix it, but what do we do first? We go to who? The resurrection and the life. We oftentimes go to other things and other means to see life, and we waste our time, our strength, and we don't see life. Our community life, you don't spend time with people. Your, your community life is in shambles. 
We basically live alone in a silo. Well, maybe it's dead, but we go to the resurrection and the life. And Jesus says, I could bring things to life. Whatever you have in your life that you see as completely dormant and dead, he tells Martha, her brother, he will rise again. And he tells us that this morning. Your dead things can rise again. Now, here's a question for you this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And that is the Christian question. Because belief is not just saying, sure, you're going to do it. Some positive thinking idea. No, it's Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world, and I submit my life to you. That is believing in the resurrection of life, Him as our Lord. And so, in your life, although the Lord may delay, His Word is beckoning us this morning to come and believe that He is the res- resurrection and the life to Martha, to His disciples, and to us. And the question for you this morning is this, and for me, do you believe this? If you do, let us run this race and embrace this truth of life in Him. Amen? Let us pray. And um, I want to give, um, I'm going to ask a couple of brothers to, to come up to the front if it's okay. And Chrysia, you could come up to to pray. We wanna, um, we're going to play just some instrumental worship if we can, whatever you have there. And I want to give you some time to respond to this and maybe you need prayer about specific areas in your life that need to come back to life. Your relationship with God, your prayer life, your generosity, your um, relationships, your connections, your disconnect with people. Listen, we all have tons of things that need to rise again from the dead. And yes, there is a coming day when we will have all the joy and all the happiness, but, but that is available to us this morning through belief in Jesus Christ. So let me pray. I'm not going to have um, Sean and Chrissia up here, if it's all right, uh, to be open for you to receive prayer if you're so led as we just take time to pray. Father, we, we thank you t- uh, this morning. We ask you for your Holy Spirit to move our hearts. For those who are going through deep grief, who have lost, not a Lazarus, but who have lost their job, for those who have lost a marriage, for those who have lost their hope, for for those who have lost their future, for those who have lost their sanity. Father, I pray that we, we may come to you and hear these words, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Father, as we consider these things, and we pray and open our hearts to you and come before you. Hallelujah. Let's just take time and come before the Lord together and worship as we continue to pray. And if you feel led to come up, we'd love to pray for you.